Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Monday, March 7th, 2011. At least it is if you're in the United States or our part of the world. We have a special guest tonight, Kevin Kelly, to talk to us about his book, What Technology Wants. Welcome, Kevin. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm, I'm personally really delighted that you're here. So Future of Education uh, does get support from Illuminate and Learn Central. Uh, LearnCentral.org is a social network for educators that's free that has Illuminate baked in. We hope that you come and uh, give it a try. Uh, coming up at the Q and ISTE show, some very fun crowdsourced activities. Both shows have an Enter Blogger Con. That's a free pre-conference event that anybody can attend, whether or not you're actually going to the show, thanks to the organizers of both those uh, shows. So the Q Edu Blogger Con is March 16th in Palm Springs from 4 to 8 p.m. Uh, the Philadelphia Edu Blogger Con is June 25th, and that's all day. Both events, we create the schedule at the start of the event, and we go from there. Uh, both Q and ISTE also have a Bloggers Cafe and Q Unplugged and ISTE Unplugged. Those are places where if you ha have never presented before, we do have a presentation area. You're welcome to sign up and present, and we actually stream it out live. Coming up on the Future of Education, tomorrow night, Don Smith-Meyer is going to show us uh, Sophia.org, which went live today, crowdsourced learning. It's sort of a commercial Sol Khan, a Salman Khan program. Then on Thursday, Mitch Resnick from the MIT Media Lab is on. Uh, and lots of fun guests coming up. Hopefully there's something there that will be of interest to you. If you've missed one of our shows, they are all recorded. And those recordings are um, at futureofeducation.com, both in full Illuminate version and in the MP3 style. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. I want to make one quick recommendation. Go up to View Layouts. Everybody, I'm going to encourage everybody to do this and select the wide layout. It makes it a little bit easier to see the chat if you do that. Tyler says my voice sounds different. Oh, okay. If it was chipmunking, it's because maybe I had a little bit of a bandwidth issue. And uh, you'll notice Illuminate does have to catch me up. At the bottom of the participant window, there are ways for you to interact. Smiley face, clapping hand, confused look, thumbs down. The hand with the green up arrow is what you would use when we go to Q&A if you'd like to ask a question using your microphone. And if you think you're going to do that, uh, do go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your microphone's working correctly. So this is a chance for you to let us know where you're participating from. To the left of the map, look for the wand with the red star. That's the laser pointer. Click on that, and then click on the map. And feel free to do a shout out in the chat as well. Let us know uh, maybe the time or temperature. Looks like Brazil, maybe Ireland. Where are our Australia friends? Not here tonight or New Zealand? Wherever you're participating from, we're sure glad to have you here. And if you're listening to the recording, we, we appreciate that you have downloaded it and are taking the time. OK, so Kevin, this is really fun for me, uh, fun and daunting, because I felt like uh, there was something brilliant on almost every page of this book. In fact, I bought the audio version so I could listen to parts of it again. Are, are you getting the response I the am. that you hoped you would? I have, I have to say, though, that I had very modest expectations because it is a very long, deep, thick, dense book, and that's certainly not where the general center of gravity is in our culture these days. So um, the people who have read it have been um, very enthusiastic and have gotten great feedback, and the comment you just made was exactly what I was hoping for. And so um, I think both me and the publishers are you know, very happy with um, what has happened with the book. It feels like you've spent a, a significant amount of time kind of crafting a larger argument here, and one that, that needs to be crafted because of its scope. 
So if it's okay, could we kind of start a little bit with your own background and what's brought you to here, and maybe in particular your own perspective on technology um, because of your, your own family and TV? Yeah, so I, I, it, this sort of reflects the general um, path of the book that I wrote itself, which is um, I begin with the idea that, um, you know, speaking of education, I'm a, a, a college dropout. I left college because I found it a little bit too much like high school and um, wanted something different. Um, and I wound up in Asia, traveling in Asia as a photographer. And um, I, I think I grew up in a suburban uh, area outside of New York City. Um, and we were fairly late to um, technology at that time. My dad was not a big fan of it initially. Um, and we um, were one of the last to get TV pretty late in my life. And for some reason, it never really clicked with me. And actually, um, while it was becoming more popular in the 60s, um, I, I just never really, I mean, I, I, I tend to shy away from it. And uh, you know, I can make up some reasons why, but I think it was because um, it just seemed to be a bossy technology, is how I would describe it. And um, I, at the same time, had an interest in um, photography and um, that convergence of science and art that I thought photography represented. And I um, spent my time traveling in Asia, photographing areas that were um, with minimal development, with traditions that were passing very quickly, recording these traditions and ceremonies um, that were fading, um, and living among people who didn't have very much technologically. Um, and so I learned several things about that. One was that, um, uh, like me, um, and in my own life, and not, I didn't own a car, I didn't own very much, I didn't had very little money, I was sort of a kind of a hippie-ish guy, I believed in some of those kind of hippie values. And um, uh, the people that I was living with um, were sort of, you know, kind of do-it-yourselfers in many respects. They were building their own homes out of, you know, earth and wood. They were making their own stuff. They were cobbling together their, their own tools. And I, I had a deep affinity for that kind of lifestyle and spent a lot of time living with people and living off of their generosity, by the way, um, in these, these areas in the Himalayas or India, Burma, and um, Korea, and Afghanistan, places like that. And the second thing, though, that I learned about that, besides the fact that they didn't have much technology, was that they um, really, really wanted it. Um, and whenever there was a chance to get new technology or better technology or improved technology, they would grab it. And in fact, they were beginning this, this um, long, deep migration out of these remote places into the booming cities of Asia. And they were going there because uh, there was this technology in the cities, and they were constrained, imprisoned, in fact, by these delightful villages, which seem at one level to have everything that we wanted, that we think we want, but in fact had only a very few things. And, um, and so they were very eager to get out. And I saw both of those things happening. I saw sort of the, the rich kind of culture they had, and this drive to move out of that into the future. And I could see with my own eyes, I could see progress happening in places like Taiwan, where I first went to in 1972, or Hong Kong in 70, I can't remember, somewhere around there, in 1972. And um, you know, as I would come back, I could see this country transform itself from a third world country with grass roofs on their huts to these mega skyscraper futuristic cities. I mean, I saw that with my own eyes. And so um, 
I, I think that really affected me in my views of technology and what was possible and what it brought to us. So you, uh, you kind of go on a quest in the book to determine the, the ultimately sort of the value of technology. Uh, and, and we'll talk about the phrase you, you end up uh, using to call this. But, but early on, you, you also say that high-tech networks started to fill our souls. Uh, that when the internet came along, it seemed almost Amish to you. Do you want to explain that? Yeah. So, 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 um, so the, there. To me, there were sort of two faces, I guess, of technology. There was this this sense of wanting to keep it to a minimum, which was sort of my own temperamental stance, I guess. Um, I mean, I. I, I managed to not own a car until I was 35, um, to, to, to not own very much through my younger adult life, very deliberately, and at the same time, um, uh, seeing the power of technology and then, of course, getting later on, getting caught up in the developments of the online world and, and um, becoming very enthusiastic about the benefits that maximizing technology could bring. And so I had these two, the two sides of trying to minimize it and trying to maximize it at the same time. And I was, uh, the book sort of began in a quest to, to see if I could find a framework to help me understand technology and then to, to, to maybe help me figure out what I should think about a new technology when it came along, when it was, they seem to do every day. So when you know the 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 Facebook the thing after the Facebook comes along. What should I think about it? How how should I think about it? What's the framework? And so um, uh, let me just say that that what I'm trying to do with the book was to provide a theory of technology because I felt that we were sort of like the world of biology was before Darwin. Before Darwin, there were lots of naturalists field biologists, and basically they had all these collections of organisms arrayed in little glass, you know, like collections of butterflies or kind of arrayed in rows and rows, and there was generally, nature was just one thing after another. It was, it was just these collections, and there wasn't really any kind of theory to understand what was going on, and, and I feel in a certain way that our, our technological world is the same, is the same a pre-Darwinian state in that technology for us is just sort of like one thing after another. Oh, here's another invention, here's another one, here's another one. And there's sort of no real framework for understanding it or placing them or categorizing them or, or, or predicting them or anything. It's just one thing after another. And so what I tried to do with the book is to step back a little bit and see if I could... Um, bring forth some kind of theory or framework for understanding it. And my hope was that I would do the journalist thing of spending a couple of years going around talking to all the smart philosophers and technologists and recording their um, insights and uh, reporting back to the world what the theory was. But it turned out after many years of trying to do this that there really wasn't one. And I tried to cobble together my own version, uh, and I offer that as sort of a, a rough cut, and that theory is, is maybe no surprise, basically an extension of Darwin's theory. But the um, thing that happened as I was trying to to do this was I, 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 I realized that um, in my own life that I had uh, the, the part of that shift in understanding um, technology came um, from my exposure to the online world. And, and I had a, a business trying to sell travel information. I, I came back and started writing about travel and I was selling travel, budget travel guides and I had a computer to try and do that, to typeset it. And at one point I bought a modem and I plugged the computer into the telephone. And this was in you know 1980 or so, and um, that moment 
when I plugged the computer, an Apple IIe, a very primitive thing that had no, you know, the, the, all you saw were green letters scrolling by very fast. When I plugged that thing into the telephone system, I had an epiphany because on the other side were, was this uh, emerging online world where people were chatting on bulletin boards and starting to make communities and um, being very human and maybe even more than human in the sense that they were some of the best of human interchanges and some of the worst in terms of flaming and trolls, which were words we didn't have at the beginning, but that behavior was there. But nonetheless, there was this remarkable um, eruption of um, civil life in online communities. And um, that began to make me question the, the old hippie idea of these big systems being things that demoralized and crushed the human spirit. Because here I was seeing these big complicated systems actually engendering and fostering and, and, and promoting individuality and promoting um, cooperation and sharing. And um, that's when I said, well, this, this feels a little bit like an Amish barn raising to me, less like a big, big brother. And um, I think that was the beginning of me kind of seeing a more organic, uh, maybe a more humane face of technology. And that forced me to kind of reevaluate and to relook at other technologies through a different perspective, through this perspective that the technium, which I'll describe, the technium is actually an extension of, of nature, that, that, that really, that the best theory to understand technology is really the same one that we understand the living world with, which is evolution. So this is where it gets really deep, because you tie the cosmos and the bios and the technium together. So, so why don't you tell us uh, what the technium is, and then kind of help us to see how, uh, as the title of the book says, that there's a way of looking at what technology wants. Right. So, so, so one of the things, first of all, this is, um, uh, this is a little bit um, of the same kind of game that Richard Dawkins played. Richard Dawkins, the English zoologist, biologist, who's famous for his um, books on genes, selfish gene and evolution. And he did it, does a trick with this, a book called The Selfish Gene, which is he imagines, uh, um, imagines the world of biology. Is actually fun, uh, uh, he tries to look at it through the viewpoint of genes. and says, well, from the viewpoint of genes, a, a chicken is just a, um, the chicken genes way of making more chicken genes. And that, I mean, because it even goes further deeper than the chicken and the egg, goes down to the genes and says that, um, you know, the, the reason why there's altruism is because siblings share half of their genes, and so therefore, if you keep your siblings alive, those those genes will be some of those genes will be shared. So there's there's a quote motivation unquote for the genes to um, be altruistic to their siblings. Um, and the whole point of, of this is that he's trying to look at the world through this non-personal, apersonal um, mechanics, almost mathematical system of genetics. Um, but obviously, that's not the only way to look at the world, and it kind of, it's kind of a screwy way in some senses, but it's actually a very productive way, because even Richard Dawkins himself, when he looks at his children, he's not saying, oh, you're just Dawkins' genes trying to replicate. He's he, he, he is capable to have two views at the same time. And I'm doing a similar trick of, of technology. I'm trying to look at the world through the eyes of technology itself as a system. And um, by that I mean is, is that you know, whatever devices you have right now in front of you, whatever high-tech devices you have, um, are in some ways um, really webs of other of, of lots of technologies. They require hundreds of other derivative and supportive technologies to manufacture and to keep going. And there's 
very little standalone technology. Everything is sort of almost like an ecosystem of codependent other technologies around them. And if you stand farther enough to bass, you can see that all these codependent systems are all kind of overlapping and that there's really sort of one very, very large network or ecosystem of all the technologies together in the way that, you know, we need a hammer to make a saw, we need a saw to make the hammer handle, but they're kind of co-supporting each other. And that larger system of all the things we have made forms something in and of itself. It's a sum greater than its parts. It's like the, the hive of many, many bees. And I call that system the technium. And, and it's bigger than just technologies because it's it really indicates that there's co-supportive codependency. And uh, that system itself will exhibit many, many behaviors that the parts don't, uh, just as a beehive will have many, many behaviors that are not found in individual bees. So the technium can exhibit certain tendencies that you know the iPhone itself is not or an automobile won't or a spoon won't. So your spoon's not alive, an automobile's not, not alive, but the system itself, all this together, the technium does exhibit certain lifelike tendencies, urgencies, leanings, biases, and I use the word wants because it, I feel that this is slightly biological and wants in the way that plants want life. It's not conscious, it's not deliberate, it's not intelligent, it's just a, it's, it's a kind of a primeval urge in a certain direction. And so I am asking the question, if we have a system of all these technologies together, is there some bias in it that is working in addition to our own choices, but behind all those choices? Is there, is, is you know, all things equal? Is there, um, is, is, it, is it kind of in some sense self-programmed to go in certain directions? And um, my answer, of course, is yes, just like life is. And I make the argument from biology, suggesting that within the system of biology and evolution, that there are also these same kind of tendencies and urgencies and biases, that it, there is an agenda that moves in average towards certain things, and that the technium, this world that we've made with our minds um, also exhibits remarkably the same kind of biases and tendencies and wants that evolution does. And, and that's the sort of short version of the book. So the, the long trend through, you know, through, 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 the, uh, through the universal cosmic history is, is that there's a that there is a, um, a, a, a general bias towards increasing complexity, increasing diversity, increasing specialization, increasing power management, increasing um, mutualism, increasing organization and order, that, that all these things are, are, are gradually increasing in certain pockets of the universe in small areas while the rest of the universe is running down in entropy that we have this kind of a long thread of, of building up more and more complexity and order um, over time. And the, the bigger cosmic story of this journey w w says that, that the technium is sort of the latest in this, evo in this ongoing evolution and uh, self-order and self-organization that the, just, just as the cosmos um, self-organized into um, atoms and, and, and over time the stars would make heavier and heavier atoms and those uh, heavier and heavier elements from the light hydrogen and helium and those heavier elements would coalesce and self-organize into planets and those uh, planets, if they were in the right conditions, we could self-organize into an atmosphere and that atmosphere in the right conditions could self-organize life, at least the one planet we know about and that life could self-organize a mind, and those minds would self-organize the technium, and that and that we are that when we make things, that, that while we are sitting around inventing new things, manufacturing new things, trying to sell and market new things, 
then that all may seem trivial or, or we may believe that we're kind of being sucked into some kind of consumeristic engine or capitalistic um, conspiracy just to sell stuff. But in, in, in all that may be true, but at the same time, we are also participating in something that's much bigger than ourselves, which is this long cosmic story of self-organization, increasing self-order, exotropy, um, working in a ratcheting way of making more and more inc uh, options, possibilities, and choices, and, 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 that, and that when we do and make these new things, we're actually participating in that. We're, we're actually aligning ourselves with this long story. And that therefore, there's a bigger meaning to technology in the technium than it might first appear. So if you haven't read Kevin's book, we're going to be glossing over some pretty big pieces here. But Kevin, it feels like you, you end up very much exploring the cosmos and then exploring evolution and kind of aligning theories with uh, what, you're, what you're extrapolating to the technium. Um, and and you, I think you come to the conclusion that our response to the technium should be similar as it is to nature that we sort of have to work with that force rather than against it. Is that fair? Yes, that's, that's, that's very fair. That, that, that it is, and also, by the way, that, it, that, that it's going to be, that we're going to have to use it while, while we don't understand it. That, that, that actually, that the complexity of our manufactured world has already exceeded our understanding of it. And that yet we can, yet we will still be embedded in it and still use it, just as we don't understand nature, and that's beyond our understanding. We can still um, live in it and still have to work with it, even though we don't completely understand it. So, so, so the stance is very similar to that in nature. So it feels to me like you also spend a fair amount of time in the book, throughout the book, kind of uh, uh, justifying your relatively positive sense. Uh, and in one chapter I think people would find really interesting uh, is titled The Unabomber Was Right. So uh, we have limited time, but uh, to the degree that it's reasonable to do so now, do you want to quickly review why, where you think he was right and where you think he wasn't right? Yeah, so, so you know, I, I, I very quickly um, announced at the beginning of that chapter that um, I was sort of horrified to find that some of the best writing on understanding the technium as a system was a Unabomber because uh, um, you know his response to this knowledge was um, you know murdering 23 people and um, uh, maiming many others and uh, you know he's, he's a serial mass murderer um, yet he uh, his starting premises uh, were very, very clear. Um, I, I disagreed with his starting premises. I disagree with his conclusion or his actions and his response. And where he was clear is, is this idea of understanding that, there is, that, that the technique does have an agenda, that, that it is a system, and, and that you, you, you can't, that you, the system has its own self-amplifying um, inertia. And, um, and, and so uh, his Unabomber manifesto, uh, manifesto was a long, detailed explanation about why that was true. And that's what he's right about. He's wrong about, I think, his conclusions about what the agenda is. He concludes that the agenda is to rob people of freedom. And I think he got that completely backwards. It actually brings people's freedom. Um, and so that's, in the short, what it is, is that... Is that um, He's right in the sense that there is an agenda. He's wrong in understanding what that agenda is. Um, and that agenda, which I think is the agenda, is to increase the choices and options and opportunities for everyone. For the Unabomber, he saw technologies as um, taking away his choices. And curiously, he wound up living in a, a, a hut in the mountains, where actually he has less less choices in that hut and less 
standard of living than he does in his prison cell. His prison cell is about the same size and um, offers many of the things that his hut did not. And he, I believe, confused the idea of latitude with freedom. So um, he could roam around the mountains or he could hoe his beans at any hour that he chose to, but he was very, very limited in what he could do. Um, and uh, so he had great latitude in a very narrow um, frame of freedom. And I think um, that's the problem a lot of people living in the third world have is, is you know, they, or even someone say a nomad um, out in the steppes of Siberia is they, they seem to be free in a certain sense. But in fact, the choices of what they can do with their day is very constrained. And so they have great latitude in a, in a few dimensions, um, but very few degrees of freedom overall. And I think um, that's where the Unabomber was wrong. Well, you, you also talk in the book about the movement to cities and why people would leave what we see as sort of an idyllic world uh, to go to cities. And, and you talk about um, how we, we do sort of portray things mythically, forgetting that there were some harsh aspects to that life that, that get solved by technology. Yeah, um, I, I, I think we, the reason why there's a mass migration away from um, these beautiful hamlets where people have sunshine, they eat organic food, they have their grandparents there for support, um, they have the satisfaction of using their hands to make things that are useful. Those, these are all very, very prime and primeval um, satisfactions and, and um, yet these people by the hundreds of millions are, are stampeding and going to live in in very filthy slums in many of the developing world. And, and they do that because they actually have more choices and possibilities. They have the, the, the opportunity to try to get the education, if not for them, for their children. Of, of They can be something other than just a farmer. They can um, be something other than just a mother. They can um, start to use the other elements of what we were considered uh, human creativity. Um, which they were not able to do if they were a shepherd um, tending their flocks. And so um, uh, th there is a price that they pay, but they pay it willingly because they can always go back to their village, and a few do, but not too many. And they continue to pay that price because the net gain from that is very clear to them. And I think for us living in the West, it sometimes doesn't seem to be as clear. We say, well, why are they being pushed into these slums and stuff. Well, they're, 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 they're pulled there because of the increased choices and opportunities. And I think what I want to emphasize in this book, this is what we get. This is what technology brings us in the long term. It, it creates new problems. I mean, each new invention may create as many new problems as it does solutions. It's not utopia. But what it gets us in, in, in the game is that we have increasing choices and possibilities. And that, by the way, is exactly what education is, is really about. It's, it's about increasing our choices and possibilities because a lot of those choices and possibilities come only through our own knowledge, through our own awareness. And, um, uh, it's it's something it's in, in education of course is one of the marks that we have for progress is the fact that um, you know even 100 years ago 200 year, years ago most of these people were not literate could not read or write um, had no opportunity to expand their minds and um, as bad as some of these slums are there is far more opportunities for that than there was in the village just a couple of years ago and so um, this is the this is the great movement through our time and through history. Um, people will move to choices and possibilities. And, and so, with that, I think you're saying that there becomes kind of a moral imperative related to what we do with technology. Yes, I'm I'm suggesting that a kind of common common conventional wisdom, which is that technology is just neutral. And, and there's a certain sense to that. 
any technology can be weaponized. So a good technology can be made harmful, but you can weaponize almost any anything that we can think of. We can probably think of some way to weaponize it. And I think the converse is also true that anything we can think of, we can probably think of ways to make it more convivial, to make it more lifelike, to make it more to pieceify it. And um, and so that would suggest to people, well, well it's just neutral. Um, there's, uh, if you invent a hammer, you can use a hammer to kill someone or to build a house, and it's kind of your choice. And, and, and this is true. But there's another, uh, I think, un uh, uh, another calculus, another bit of that equation that, that we have to add on, and that is, is that when we invented that hammer or any new invention, we are creating at least one and probably more new choices, the choice to use it to kill someone or to build a house that did not exist before. And that new choice itself is a small good. And therefore, that each, that what we're doing is not just, yeah, we have the, 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 even if we use that invention for harm, the fact that we have that choice is still a good. And it's that tiny bit of extra good that comes from having these new choices that I believe tips the balance slightly, very slightly, in the favor of the good. And it may only be like, you know, one, one tenth of a percent or one percent better. And so, but that doesn't really matter because if we are able to curate one percent more than we destroy every year, if we use technologies to curate one percent more than we destroy, we can still make civilization because that's that one percent compounded over years, that still accumulation of a very small delta, I think is what makes progress. And um, so, so while it may look like almost half of the stuff in the world is terrible, and whatever good thing you can think of, you can think of a corresponding negative thing, I think that the fact that we have these new choices, which we did not have before, is in itself a good which gives a net gain, a positive charge to technology overall, which, which can allow us to say that there is actually over the long term a moral force to technology for good. So we're seeing a lot in the chat, and, and I think this comes out in the book as well, and you just again mentioned it, which is we do feel the loss of things. Uh, even in that small yes. net gain, we, we, there are things that we say, oh, gosh, I really hate to see right. that go. So tell us what we learned from the Amish. Yes. So, so I, 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 I spent some time hanging around the Amish on my first bike ride, and later on, and, and um, went to visit them several times, and had uh, stayed with the family, and had actually went someone come out to California, and um, uh, we tend to think of the Amish as people who are Luddites, anti-technology, and they're anything but that. They're, they they actually um, have a very confusing and perplexing selection of technology where they may, you know, uh, horse and buggy instead of cars, no electricity, um, you know, bonnets and uh, suspenders for their dress. Um, and yet they're using and love genetically modified crops and they've got disposable diapers and rollerblades and um, you know it, it's this kind of weird combination and um, uh, but the, the, what's happening with the Amish and, and here's my you know, conclusion of, of, of looking at how they do things and the question I kept asking them was how do they decide what technologies to accept and which ones to to refuse what is that mechanism because they're unique in the sense that we all are selecting technologies but we do it individually in a kind of American way, and they do it collectively as a community. And because they're doing it collectively, that requires them to articulate what it is our criteria are. So they actually kind of are aware of how they're selecting things, whereas most of us are not really aware, and we don't really have a logic that we can talk about. But they, but, but, but they do. And here's what their logic comes down to, is they're always looking for accepting those technologies that would help them promote their communities, it makes their community stronger, so they don't use cars, they use horse and buggy because a horse can only go 15 miles in a day, and that restricts to how far they can go, so that forces them to shop locally, 
to um, visit the to go to hospitals locally, to do everything locally within 15 miles. And the second criteria is they always ask, does this technology will it, will it help us to um, maintain our family business in in our homestead where the entire family can work together? So the the Amish ideal is is that you spend your entire life that you have every single meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with your kids because they are working with you. And um, uh, a lot of the Amish grow up the entire way is, is that they, they, they participate and they, their livelihoods are all family-based. And so their questions they're asking about technologies is, does this technology allow us to continue that? And um, it's very um, inspiring and, and very warm and heartwarming um, result because they have these very great communities. They, if your house burns down, your neighbors build it. If you get sick, your neighbors pay your hospital bills. If you need any kind of counseling, your peers do it. It's, it's, it's fantastically supportive. But here's the cost. So what the Amish are doing, they're, they're minimizing technology in their lives. And what they're maximizing is uh, their comfort and leisure and, and the support system. They have, they have more leisure time than, than most of us because they have so few labor-saving devices they can actually have more time. So they're minimizing technology, but they're also minimizing their options and possibilities. So if you are an Amish boy, you have one, two destinies. You're either a farmer or a mechanic in the backyard. If you're an Amish girl, you have one destiny. You're, you're a mother. Those are the only choices. There is no possibility of being a mathematician, an Amish mathematician, or even an Amish doctor, an Amish lawyer, an Amish musician, an Amish um, ballerina, an Amish um, a programming genius. Those are not options. And so they have, 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 have maximized comfort, security, and support uh, at the cost of minimizing choices and degrees of freedoms and possibilities and options. And for most of us, that's not what we're about. We are about maximizing these other things, of trying to be able to create technology that would allow everybody on this planet to find their own genius and express it. And um, we could live like the Amish, but we don't because we're not willing to give up those choices and opportunities. So I think you just sort of encapsulated the sort of the, sort of the, the magic of this for you, which was to allow people to um, to work on things that are their, that are related to their own passions and their own personal growth. So if we think about how we get to that place, um, and we think particularly about education and the role of education in helping to kind of liberate people in terms of understanding their own lives and, and their culture and their opportunities. Um, how do we help uh, create educational systems or cultures that would maximize that? That's a really good question. And, and, and I think that um, um, one of the things I talk about in this book, one, one of my kind of definitions of technology is basically a, a thought made concrete um, that, that, that you know, if, it's like if, 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 if one of your students, say, has a, a bad idea, we're, we're never going to counsel that student to, to think less um, or stop thinking. Um, our counsel would be, um, hey, come up with a better idea. And I, I think technology is in the same kind of thing that it's, it's like a, a thought made concrete. So that if we have a, a, a bad technology, a technology that's say har harmful, or is not uh, bringing people options, we 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 shouldn't say we need less technology or no technology. We we, we want to say we need better technology. So the proper response to a bad idea is a better idea. The proper response to uh, bad technology is, is better technology. And so I think there's a real correlation between thinking and thought and knowing and, there, and technology. And I think that that's not, I think there's, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that the, the, the technological progress that we see right now is very much correlated to educational progress and, and educational um, 
levels. And so, um, and, and, and I, because I think science and technology is a, is a way of knowing. It, and what we're changing right now is the way in which we know things. Um, because one of the things that evolution is about is just constantly evolving the way things change, the way things evolve. And technology is accelerating the way things change. And so what's happening now is the way the, the nature of change is changing, which is another way to say that the way we know things is changing. And so I think that um, the, 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 the problems and issues that we have in understanding education are not separate from the challenges of, technology, of the technium itself, because um, um, how, how we learn things and how we learn how to learn really is the crux of where we go with the technium, where we go with technology. The technology is a, is a way of investigating the universe. It's a way, together with science, is a way of, of how we know things. And um, I, I think that it's very much tied into how we learn. And, and um, we all know that, that learning cannot just be kept in the classroom, that it, it is part of something that's ongoing. And so I think w w what this convergence of technology and education can teach us in a broader sense is um, um, how it can teach us to how to, to keep on learning how to learn, which is, I think is the meta skill that the culture itself is really about. And if we can have it reflected in our own education as, as, as individuals, then um, that will bring us more in alignment with what technology wants. So we're going to move to Q&A at this point. Uh, if you put a question in the chat, I promise you I have not seen it. Uh, uh, there's been so much chat, and, and the conversation has been so engaging. So I'm going to ask you, if you've done that, to put a question for Kevin in the chat again, if you wouldn't mind. Or feel free to use the hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand. And, and, and while we're waiting for that, Kevin, I'm going to say this is sort of a personal dilemma for me, because some of the classrooms and and school activity that seem to me to be most capable of helping students learn how to learn currently don't actually have much to do with the use of technology in the classroom. So there's so this sort yes. of funny thing going on for me. Yes, no, I, I agree. In fact, I wrote a piece for the New York Times about um, you know, homeschooling my son last year in eighth grade. And um, I was writing in this piece about how um, uh, te technological things were actually sort of at the minimum of of their importance in what we were doing, um, and um, when I say technology, of course, what I maybe not had, had emphasized enough to begin with is that I, I I have a very broad definition, and I don't mean just gadgets like online stuff. Uh, computer networks and Twitter. Um, f for me, technology encompasses um, things like literacy, like learning how to read and write. Uh, those are technologies as well. Um, law, the, 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 you know, the code of law is a technology. Um, and, and, in, in, and science, is the, the scientific method is also a technological technique in the sense that it's something that we invented. And so um, th those kinds of, of technologies, I think, do have a role in, um, in, in this learning how to learn. Um, and, and I think you know, these other techniques of critical thinking, those are soft technologies, but technological inventions nonetheless. And I think that emphasis on the soft ones is, is very appropriate, particularly for K-12, where I think K-12 is more like um, you're kind of, it's more like child rearing where you're trying to teach some meta skills and character and values. And I think the soft technologies are much more important than the hard technologies at the lower levels. So I have a question from D. McGavick who says, who asks, what technology does Kevin find useful for his learning? Great question. Um, I, one of my chief technologies for learning is actually writing. I write to think. Um, 
I, like a lot of people, I, I, I find that having to write something tells me what I am that I'm thinking. I, I, some people have access to what they think without writing, and I, and I don't. I actually don't know what I think about something or don't know what even I know about something until I attempt to write it. So for me, that's one of the major f forms of technology. Kevin, are you Irish? Uh, yes. So there, I, I am as well. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm half, ha, half Irish, and at this point, I'm half Chinese. I, I can remember uh, going to I'm Irish as well, and, or have Irish a portion of Irish ancestry, and going to Ireland and reading in the guidebook. There's a, some famous Irish saying, "I don't know what I'm thinking until I say it." And I thought, oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Garrigan asks, Kevin, can you compare your idea of emergence as described in Out of Control with your ideas of the technium? Yeah, so in Out of Control, um, my, the, uh, a main thing I was trying to emphasize was the fact that the distinction that we believe exists between living systems like nature, biology, organisms, you know, the starfish, kangaroo, and the manufactured things like, a, a, you know, a MacBook, um, an automobile, um, and an antibiotic is, 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 is not as great as we think that they're actually both of those, the, the world of the born, the biology and the world of the made, the manufactured, are actually two facets of, the, of a larger system. Um, and I, I'm suggesting that um, uh, detecting is sort of an extension of that same idea that, 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 that if, if you understand that, then it makes it, uh, the argument in detecting a little easier to, to buy. Um, and that, in fact, um, uh, what we see with very complicated systems, whether they're natural or artificial, is that um, behaviors can emerge out of them and then that's how we get complexity over time is, is that you know, smaller units can coalesce into it can be networked in some way of interrelationships and that resulting network of, of, of smaller parts is in itself will exhibit a new level of behavior and of course that can then become a, a node in something even bigger and you have this uh, kind of a hierarchy of nested systems, and that's how we get the very complicated things. And that these systems um, are very hard to control and understand, um, and, and we can be at peace with that. But but that they that the manufactured world, uh, the only way for us to really make these complicated things is to borrow the same kind of principles that operate in biology. And so emergence is 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 definitely part of my argument in, in this book about the technium, which is that this system that we've made exhibits emergent behaviors that are not present in the parts. So if you want to ask Kevin a question, please do feel free to raise your hand. That's the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of the participant window. Someone did so, and then looks like they put their hand down. But please feel free to do that if you'd like. Uh, Kevin, Paula asks, do you write using a computer or with pen and paper? I can no longer read my own handwriting. I do a lot of taking notes in a, um, you know, moleskin notebook, and unfortunately, I, I, I can't understand what I wrote yesterday. So um, um, the only way for me to be able to read what I write is to is to type it. Do you use any kind of a specific tool? Like I end up finding uh, Evernote works really well with my style. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, these. Uh, I'm using Evernote for kind of collecting things, but I have been using Scrivener, which is on a Mac. I'm a Mac person. Um, I've been using Scrivener to um, write longer things like uh, a book where I have many, many moving parts. And I find that that does a pretty good job. It's sort of a kind of a, a three by far, three by five card based metaphor. And um, I can move things around. Um, and build things up. It's kind of like a glorified outliner in some level, but it's a little easier for me to, to understand. It's an interesting 
topic for me just in general, how certain technologies seem to facilitate my using them as an extension of my mind. One of the things I really like about Evernote, and we've talked a lot about Dropbox in here, are the ways in which there are places where you can dump information and then, as it works for you, sort through it later. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, this is sort of the, the, the was a great um, uh, aha moment in Wikipedia, which is that um, this idea that you um, publish first and edit later. Um, again, breaking apart the kind of creative act that writers go through, which is you know you produce first and you edit later. And if you have your editor watching you over your shoulder while you're producing, it'll never work. You actually have to keep those separate. And I think there's a little bit of that with the Evernote, which is like, you know, gather first and then edit. Don't try and edit while you're gathering. And I think um, uh, th th that makes sense to me, um, and I think it facilitates others who have the same problem of having that little editor on their shoulder saying, oh, that's not really worthwhile, that's no good. But you really do want to separate those functions. So we have a couple more minutes. If you have a question for Kelly and you've put it in the chat and I've missed it, please post it again or feel free to raise your hand. That's the hand with the green up arrow. Kevin, I found that the, uh, the metaphor of the river was a good one for me in terms of kind of having the sense of the trajectory or the path after or the, uh, um, the pull of technology. Do you, do you want to describe that a little? Do you remember that? Yes. So, so, I think you actually used it in yeah, the context um, of uh, the bios. Yes. And so, so here's the, 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 one of the uh, assertions I make in the book. Um, I'll, I'll try to do this very briefly. Is that um, that there are directions in in technological development just as there are in evolution, biological evolution, and then that's a very controversial statement because there are many evolutionary biologists who, who like Stephen Jay Gould who um, hammered over and over again that there were, there were no directions in evolution. Evolution was a completely stochastic, completely unpredictable um, process that if you rewind the tape of life, you just started from the same initial seed and uh, you had 3.7 billion years of evolution, that you would get everything completely, completely different, that nothing would be the same. And that turns out to be incorrect. And I won't go through the evidence for that, but there are, um, uh, another body of, of work of uh, people who say, actually, no, we can show that there are uh, directions that if you take the seed of life, the same initial cell, and you have 3.7 billion years of evolution and you run that again and again, you get some of the same things again at a high level, like uh, wings, flapping wings, which are, are, appeared four different times, evolution invented four different kinds independently. You see eyes, which uh, camera eyes, which uh, evolution invented 30 different times independently. And um, uh, so the way I kind of suggest to think about that is, is, is uh, there, there's a higher level form that's inevitable, that, that, that's constraining evolution. But the specifics, the species are not at all predictable or, or inevitable. Um, and that you, if you can imagine kind of the the, the, a river going down through a river valley, it's, it's being constrained by the, by the floodplain. It's going to meander within certain limits, and that's inevitabilities. But the actual you know, course, the actual individual course of that oxbow and that churn river is completely unpredictable. And that's the species level of things. And so what I'm saying in the technology realm is that the progression of technologies at the high level are inevitable and we, we need to prepare for them. The actual character and expression of the specifics are not inevitable. We have a tremendous amount of choice in that, and then those makes a huge difference to our experience of it. Um, and so we, you know, we do want to choose wisely, but we also have to understand that at the high level, the largest level, that a lot of these things are just inevitable, and we have to prepare for ourselves for them. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the attention. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to ask, answer everybody's questions, but there is a book. You're welcome to take a look at that, and I hope you do. And I appreciate um, the opportunity to talk about it. 
Thanks. So we've been talking with Kevin Kelly. The book is What Technology Wants. Uh, Kevin, I get to read a lot of books as a part of this interview series, and I will tell you this is a uh, five-star in my uh, category. Uh, this is a book that I feel has loved tremendously and really appreciate that you took the time to think through these things and then to document them. Uh, so please consider looking at that. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central for supporting the series, and do feel free to join us uh, upcoming tomorrow, Don Smithmeyer on crowdsource learning, and then Thursday, Mitch Resnick, and lots, lots more. Kevin, thanks again. Sure, you're welcome. Really appreciate your being here. Okay, so our commitment to our guests is that they get to leave at the top of the hour. So Kevin, thanks for coming on, but feel free to, to, uh, to dodge out. Uh, those who would like to stay in the chat for a few minutes are welcome to to talk back and forth. Uh, I do have to clear the room in order for the recording to process. So in about five minutes, I'll um, kick everybody out and make sure that happens. And the recording will go up tonight on futureofeducation.com. Good night, everybody. Good night, Kevin. Good night. Good night. So that was really fun, and, and what a thoughtful man, and uh, what a fascinating subject. If you haven't seen the book, highly recommend it. Uh, again, I not only have the physical copy, but I got the audio book as well and have been listening to it uh, a second time. Okay, I'm going to turn the recording off. Thanks for listening, and we'll let you stay in the room for a couple of minutes, but it looks like we're closing out. <laughs>